Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Dr. William Dietz, director of the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity in the Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Prior to joining the CDC, he was a professor at the Tufts University School of Medicine, widely known for his research on childhood obesity in particular. Dr. Dietz is one of those few individuals that is a fiercely bright, productive scholar uh, at the same time being very involved with public policy at the government level. So thank you for joining us. Glad to be here, Kelly. Thanks. So when you look at something like preventing obesity, one could be doing a lot of different things. At the very uh, first glance, you could be dealing with diet versus physical activity. But then there's so many policies that one could favor under both of those banners that it, it's a, it's interesting to think about how you establish priorities. So at the CDC, you, you've been overseeing this division that has a lot to say about national policy on obesity. Let's talk first about how do you make decisions? How do you decide where you're going to get the greatest return? What policies are most likely to be effective in the face of, of far too often having no data on whether these policies work. Well, before we go to the policy side, it might be useful to think about what has been most meaningful in terms of achieving the visibility of this epidemic. Um, and you know, some of this is not planned at all. And in fact, the development of the obesity maps from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System is just one example. Those maps originated from a serendipitous dis hallway discussion in which Ali Mokdad, one of my staff, um, said, you know, we've got all this behavioral risk factor surveillance system data um, from states, and we included body mass index measurements. What do you think we could do with it? So we concluded that one of the things we could do with it is to, do a, uh, to use those data on a state-by-state -state basis to map changes in the prevalence of obesity. And that led to the behavioral risk factor surveillance system maps, which were, everyone showed for years and still do. Uh, still do. Um, you know, yeah. For the listeners who aren't familiar with this, you can go to the CDC websites. If you just Google CDC obesity maps, you'll pull this up and you'll mm -hmm. see state by state, year by year, uh, obesity rates changing over time. And it's a really very powerful visual method message. That was, the, I think, the first and probably most effective thing we did to increase the visibility of the epidemic. Because after one sees those maps, you can no longer say this is not a problem. The question becomes what to do about it. And that's what happened to us. We published those maps in 1999, and, and they just spread like wildfire. And you could not go to a presentation without seeing them. But that left us in the situation of having to define what we needed to target in terms of obesity prevention and control. And um, we couldn't wait for the best possible evidence. We had to act on the best available evidence. And the first four things that we targeted were physical activity, which reduces morbidity, uh, fruit and vegetable intake, which is low energy density and uh, increases satiety, breastfeeding, uh, which is an important um, early prevention strategy, and television viewing. And subsequently, we added to that sugar drink intake um, and um, high energy density foods, meaning fast foods. Now, those are target behaviors. Those aren't the same as strategies. And our goal then was to define what are the strategies 
most likely to enhance those behaviors. So with respect to... Um, Before we get to the strategies, could I ask you a question sure. specifically about breastfeeding? A lot of people listening may not necessarily think of breastfeeding as one of the, the, the behaviors that you'd most like to increase in the context of obesity. How is it related and why is it important? Well, it's pretty clear now that breastfeeding reduce, reduces early childhood obesity. Um, the mechanism is a little less certain. Um, it's certainly not the composition of breast milk because there's been a recent study that shows that if you put breast milk in a bottle and feed that to children, their weight gain is comparable to children who consume formula. So it probably has more to do with the um, infant's ability to regulate their own satiety. There's how much they eat whether they've had enough is not regulated by what's left in the bottle, but by the infant's cues to the mother after, as it's nursing. And let's just take policy initiatives around breastfeeding. We know that <clears throat> baby-friendly hospitals, those hospitals in which the breastfeeding is the default behavior, that infants are not provided formula, um, that there's uh, uh, that baby-friendly behaviors which include skin-to-skin -skin contact early on, uh, rooming in, uh, no, um, no feedings other than breast milk and, and a variety of other behaviors increase the prevalence of breastfeeding. Not only the prevalence, but the duration of breastfeeding, both of which are related to a lower prevalence of obesity. So those are policy initiatives that hospitals can employ. And, um, and incenting hospitals to do so becomes an, an important strategy. Um, strategies around physical activity um, include a variety, a variety of very clear evidence-supported strategies. Parks and recreation facilities um, are a recommended strategy to increase physical activity. Proximity to parks and recreation facilities is a recommended strategy. Um, quality physical education where kids are moving most of the time is a recommended strategy to in increase physical activity. These are certainly behaviors, but to get those behaviors in place requires policies that prompt schools to retain physical education programs uh, or policies which create communities in which walking is a behavior that is feasible. And there are large neighborhoods in Atlanta that have no sidewalks where uh, people, and not only do they have, uh, do they lack sidewalks, but they're not places to which people can walk. Um, the only place, the only way you can get to a place that you want to get to, uh, other than your driveway, is by getting in your car and, and driving. So those are, uh, to each of those behaviors that I mentioned, those six behaviors, we've tried to attach strategies, and those strategies are often policy initiatives which make those behaviors more, more feasible, more practical. Um, sugar drinks, um, uh, uh, limiting availability, promoting uh, increased water intake is another example. Uh, fresh, f f um, healthy food financing initiatives that make uh, retail areas available in low-income areas that lack grocery stores is a way of increasing the uh, likelihood of a healthy diet among those folks. Uh, so each of those behaviors, uh, target behaviors, have associated with them strategic efforts that often rely on policy or environmental change to implement the, the behavioral change that we're shooting for. So you've talked about a combination of physical activity and dietary interventions. Do you have a, a, a specific proportion of those two things that you'd like to see implemented? I mean, do you say that we should do X percent of physical activity and Y percent of dietary interventions and to get the optimal impact on obesity? 
Uh, no, we, we, we're, we are not that sophisticated yet. Um, what we think, though, is like tobacco, a um, multi-component, multi-sectoral approach is going to be required, that there's no single behavior which is going to reverse obesity. That um, we have, and a good example of how one might implement those comes from childcare. Um, children spend lots of time in early care and education settings, um, and lots of children spend lots of time there. So changing the policies that affect food and physical activity in childcare settings is a very reasonable way to influence early childhood obesity. So um, policies like um, making sure that water is readily available, banning sugar drinks, uh, low-fat or no-fat milk, fruits and vegetables at every meal, um, making sure that kids have 60 minutes of physical activity a day, and limiting television time um, are multi-component strategies that uh, are influence children in settings where they spend a lot of time. And uh, although we don't have data yet that demonstrate that those effectively reduce the likelihood of obesity, there's no question that children in those settings are going to be healthier. So with, with limited government money to undertake these kind of programs, uh, you probably have to think a lot about leveraging the influence or the position of the Centers for Disease Control and getting national change uh, because there's just not unlimited budgets to go out and do these things. How do you think that through? Well, that, that's often a challenge. Um, but one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is the triple bottom line that there are some strategies which are going to have an environmental impact, a positive environmental impact, a health impact, and an economic impact. One of the best examples is something that's going on in Atlanta right now, which is the building of a Beltline, a 22-mile loop around Atlanta, uh, consisting of parks, walking trails, bike trails, and public transit. This is just beginning to develop, but it's clear that that is going to improve the environment because it's going to reduce reliance on cars and increase, uh, it's going to have an impact on health because of its um, benefit in terms of walking, biking, or even using public transit, which we know increases physical activity. And it's going to have an economic benefit that those neighborhoods that are adjacent to the Beltline are going to um, increase the tax base. They're much more desirable places to live. What we have to be careful about with respect to the Beltline is that we're not displacing low socioeconomic, low socioeconomic groups by making the neighborhoods where they currently live more desirable to upper-income folks. So I'd like to have you look into your crystal ball now and prognosticate about what might happen with policies related to obesity in the future. If you go ahead five years, ten years, what do you think we'll see that we're not seeing now or what we might only be seeing in their introductory stages now? Well, I'm hoping that, that we're going to see a a renewed commitment to wellness, that um, we've been living in a very laissez-faire type um, lifestyle where um, we're really not actively choosing uh, what it is that we do or consume. And part of that is because we've constructed for ourselves a, a lifestyle which means that unhealthy foods are more readily available than healthy foods, that inactivity is uh, more likely to occur than physical activity. And I, I'm, I think we're seeing already a renewed interest in those behaviors. A good example is the way big businesses are responding um, because businesses, more than anybody else, recognize that they're paying the costs of obesity for their unhealthy and overweight workforce. 
and they are already instituting um, very substantial changes in um, what foods are served in their cafeterias, the physical activity facilities that are available um, for their employees, and um, incenting those behaviors um, financially and, and otherwise. And um, in the Way to the Nation documentary, there's a, a um, focus on Nabholtz Construction, which is the largest construction company in Arkansas, which introduced a worksite wellness program and learned that it saved $600,000 in the first year of, of, uh, of engagement. Um, so I think that I, I, th I think that that obesity is is highly visible. People are beginning to respond to it, and I'm hoping that those responses, those efforts, can be sustained uh, over time. Because if they're not sustained over time, we're never going to be able to resolve this problem. So even the most progressive legislators who want to work on this need the cover of public opinion to support what they're doing. Do you see public opinion shifting on these issues? I think that's one of the challenges that. Um, the concerns about obesity have been driven by um, by elites, by I, I mean I think by government agencies, by public health authorities, by um, academics, and what we lack in this area is the kind of local commitment and engagement that is necessary to sustain the changes that are underway, um, and I'm not sure that those initiatives are always going to be about obesity, um, that. That if you think about the constituencies that are going to um, be promoting breastfeeding or passionate about breastfeeding, those groups are likely different than the ones that are passionate about physical education. So I think what we have to think about is how do we ally with movements which are going to have, uh, which are going to benefit both obesity and other issues. And, and not worry too much that they're not about obesity if, in fact, they're increasing physical activity or improving diet. Good. So it sounds like you're optimistic about the future. I am. Good, good. Well, that's a very positive note to end things on, so I appreciate you joining us. Our guest was Dr. William Dietz, Director of the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity in the Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, where you'll find a variety of resources on food policy issues, including links to other excellent podcasts. Thank you.